this point in the service. Is there children's church today? Yeah? Okay. This point in the service, or, or you just let them go and see what happens. Um, <laughs> children, kindergarten through first grade, welcome to primary church. Um, for those of you who are staying here, we're looking at the fifth commandment this week, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. You can look in your Bible, or you can also uh, find the text in your order of worship. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and pray that um, you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray also uh, that, Holy Spirit, you would come and you would bring conviction where there needs to be conviction and repentance, where there needs to be repentance, uh, grace and mercy where people need that as well. Father, I pray for myself that you be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, in the, our denomination is, is relatively small, and what that means is our region is relatively big. And so as, as a pastor, uh, I tend to have to travel a little bit more than your average pastor up and down the West Coast, primarily, you know, next week. I've got to go for a day or two to Detroit, the denominational headquarters. And I've figured out over the past 10 or 15 years that I have a gift. And the gift that I have is I, I apparently I am a magnet for young children on airplanes. I mean, if you want to know where the kid is going to sit, ask me where my seat number is. And, you know, so a few weeks ago, I went to see my daughter, Mercy, graduate from basic training. And, you know, the, the flight was from here to Dallas and from Dallas to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and then did the exact reverse. And so I landed in Dallas and got on the plane in uh, Dallas to go to Fort Worth. It's about an hour flight. It's a very small plane. I was in seat 13A, I remember. And as I was sitting in 13A, a mother came on the plane with a child. He looked maybe three or he was, a little, he was three or four, and he was just screaming at the top of his lungs. And she was looking, you know, she was looking to see the numbers, and I just immediately started to pray, right? Not here, Father, not here, Father, not here, Father, not here, please, 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 not here. 12A is where the little boy was. And he was just screaming bloody murder. And it turns out that he just didn't want to put a seatbelt on. He didn't like seatbelts. And so every time his mom would try and put it on, he would throw it away. And then the flight attendant came and said, well, son, you've got to put on your seatbelt so we can put it. And he threw it away again. And the flight was almost delayed because no one felt like they had the authority to make this three-year-old buckle his seatbelt. And, and mind you, I'm sitting right behind him, going to Army basic training. I had some thoughts, but I didn't express them. After basic, you know, we went to graduation three days later, I get on the plane in Fort Sill to fly back to Dallas to fly home, and I get on seat 13A again, and before you know it, this mom and junior get on the plane and start looking up the aisles, and I start praying, not here, Father, not here, Father, not here, Father. 12A. Same exact kid, same exact flight, same exact screaming, same exact lack of action, same exact almost delaying the aircraft because no one was willing to tell the child, just buckle up, buddy. Now, mind you, I wanted to. I wanted to lean forward and say, you know, I'm preaching in a couple weeks on the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. I mean, besides the fact that you should do it, it says your days will go long in the land. And I'm telling you, if you don't shut up, your days won't be very long on this flight. <laughs> I wanted to say that, but didn't. 
And so I tend to take those things, and I said, well, I am preaching on this in a few weeks. I'm sure this will do me, stand me in good stead. I mean, it, when you think of the fifth commandment, it really is pretty big. We're going to look at today. As, in fact, up to this point, just by way of review, we've looked at the first four commandments. Remember the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. Have no idols. Uh, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then finally, last week, we looked at remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And, and several people have thanked me. They said they took a nice long nap last week for the first time in a long time without guilt. So uh, knock yourself out again. Uh, but the, the reason I'm bringing this up today is historically, especially within Protestantism, when you look at the Ten Commandments, they've been split up into what is called the two tables of the law or the two tablets of the law. The first table is commands one through four, and the second table is commands five through ten. And one through four have to do with our duty toward God, and six, five through ten have to do with our duty toward people. And remember, Jesus made this distinction at some level when someone asked him once, you know, how do you summarize the law? And he said that you, the summary of the law is basically this. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Table one. And you should love your neighbor, neighbor as yourself. Table two. So this morning we, look, we start on table two. But the fifth commandment is sort of a bridge commandment because on one hand it, it looks at this whole issue of authority and authority it derives from God himself. On the other hand it has to do with the primary relationships in our lives. Uh, that the relationships we have with our family and ultimately, frankly, everyone else. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Basically, we're going to look at the meaning of the command. We're going to look at the scope of the command. And finally, we're going to look at the promise of the command. Now, the reason I'm going to look at the meaning of the command this morning is when you think of the Ten Commandments, you, we tend to think of them in terms of just do not, right? Don't do this, don't do this, you know, you should do this other thing. When in fact, the, the, some of them are quite different, the Sabbath was quite different. It didn't start out with a you shall not. It started out with a remember. And this commandment is, in similar fashion, is quite different. It doesn't start out with you shall not or you shall. It starts out with honor. Honor your father and your mother, and your days shall go long in the land. And so first, we, let's consider the meaning of this text. And almost, it's a side note. It's actually a pretty significant side note. In the ancient Near East, and in Israel in particular, it was very patriarchal. I mean, particularly patriarchal. And so in the ancient Near East, it would not have been surprising for someone in any of the cultures to see a law written that said, honor your father, that your days may be long in the land. The fact that the, the God included mother in this command would have been just unthinkable. I mean, it, it would have been beyond imagining. Why would he do that? Well, that's because at the end of the day, father and mother are both important. The family unit is important. And God's a lot more egalitarian probably than they would have given him credit for, and frankly, than we give him credit for most of the time. And so when you, the, the way this command begins, it begins with this word called honor. You've got to understand that to sort of make sense of the rest of it. And when the command says, honor your father and your mother, honor basically is broken down into three different categories, if you will. The first understanding of honor is just respect. In other words, the word honor in Hebrew is the word kavod, which is the word glory, which we often use of God. And it has to do with sort of uh, giving something the weight that it is due. And so on one hand, when it says honor your father and mother, it's saying to, to respect them. Give, the, give them the respect or the reverence that is due them. Show some humility. Act like you can learn something from them, right? So that's one part of it. The second part of it has to do with just submission. 
right? Submit to your father and mother. And is it talking about blind submission? Absolutely not. You see, one of the principles you see as you look through the Bible is that no command or, or thing that our parents tell us, if they tell, if they tell us to do something that, that is different than something God has told us to do, we're always supposed to obey God and not men, primarily, first of all. So it's not talking about blind submission, but it is talking about obedience. Right? At some level, there is no submission without obedience. There is no submission without respect. And if you think about it, we're called to submit to a lot of people in a lot of different areas in our life. The Bible talks about submitting to governing authorities, submitting to church leaders, submitting to parents, submitting to, to, to the rabbis in the Old Testament. So all these things are there. So when you think about honor, it has to do with respect and reverence, but it also has to do with submission and obedience. And so he's talking to the kids and saying, children, Obey your parents in the Lord. That's what the New Testament says. Interestingly enough, though, this command was probably not addressed primarily to young children. In other words, he didn't give nine commands that have to do with adultery and murder and other things like that. And he says, oh, by the way, we'll throw one in there for the little kids. Make sure you obey your parents. It actually was addressed to probably adult children. It has application for younger children. But addressed to adult children, it also means something. You see, when this is one of those commands that when you apply it to folks who are young, it has more to do with submission and obedience. And when you start applying it to what it means to honor your parents as you get older and they get older, it has to do more with respect and uh, support, primarily financial, actually, at least in the Bible. If you think about it, back in the ancient Near East, and in fact, even in the United States and most of the world until quite recently in uh, recorded history, the primary welfare system in the world was the, the family. That if, if your family didn't take care of you, you were sort of out of, your, out of luck. And so a lot of what this, this command is intensely practical, especially for Israel, because it's, it's telling, among other things, telling adult children, you need to honor your parents by way of support, emotionally, physically, and, and even financially. Now that's a hard, that's different. In the United States, oftentimes, uh, you don't really get that sense. I mean, in other words, the bigger the welfare system is in a, in a country or society, the, the harder it is to keep in mind that we actually are responsible for this, no matter how big that is. And so one of the things I'd ask you to keep in mind, you know, a lot of us are getting to an, to an age where our parents are getting elderly or older. What is our responsibility to them? You see, it, it, it becomes very difficult because it's easy to say, well, the government will take care of them. We're still responsible to support them emotionally in every other way. That's the weight of this command. But it, get, it becomes even weightier. Remember, I, I think every week that I study, I'm like, man, the Sabbath touches everything. It's so huge. Well, then, you know, you get to the fifth commandment, and I'm like, whoa, it's bigger than the fourth. And they just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, at least to me. You see, because why is it so important for, to, to honor your father and your mother, to, to respect them, to submit to them, to support them. Well, let me put it a different way. Where do you learn that? Might be a better way. You see, in, the, in the, this commandment, it's all reciprocal, especially in the New Testament makes it that way. In other words, if children are supposed to submit to their parents, they're supposed to honor their parents, parents are supposed to be teaching their children what that actually means. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, are my children learning what it means to respect are they learning what it means to submit? Are they learning what it means to support? And what's the primary way they will learn that? The primary way that children are going to learn that is they learn it by watching whether or not you respect, whether you submit, whether you support. And not just your parents, but 
everyone else as well. Have you ever heard the, the grim fairy tale, The Old Man and His Grandson? It's number 78 in their collected works. Um, this will give you some idea of why this commandment is so important. I'm just going to read it. It's pretty short. There was once a very old man whose eyes had become dim, his ears dull of hearing, his knees trembled, and when he sat at a table, he could hardly hold the spoon and spilt the broth upon the tablecloth or let it run out of his mouth. His son or his son's wife were disgusted at this, so the old grandfather at last had to sit in the corner behind the stove, and they gave him his food in an earthenware bowl and not even enough of it. And he used to look toward the table with his eyes full of tears. Once, too, his trembling hands could not hold the bowl, and it fell to the ground and broke. The young wife scolded him and said, If you are going to eat like a pig, we'll feed you like a pig. And she made a trough and put it on the floor, out of which he had to eat. They were once sitting thus when the little grandson of four years old began to gather together some bits of wood upon the ground. What are you doing there? asked the father. I'm making a little trough, answered the child, for you and mother to eat out of when I am big. The man and his wife looked at each other for a while and presently began to cry. Then they took the old grandfather to the table and henceforth always let him eat with them and likewise said nothing if he did spill a little of anything. You see... One of the questions you need to ask yourself if you are struggling and you're saying, my children don't respect me, they don't obey me, they don't submit to me, the first question you might want to ask yourself is this, how do I respect, submit, obey, and support those who are in authority over me? You see, because if you don't do that, your children are going to learn from you, and they are probably going to learn well. I've been a pastor for you know, more, more than 20 years now, and it's not ever surprising to me when you meet a person who, who themselves is not particularly submissive, and you see that they have a child that they're not reconciled with. If that's who you are, and you want to be reconciled to your kids, I would suggest one of the things you do maybe is pursue them and talk to them about your failure to obey and submit the authority that was placed over you, and maybe apologize to them for that. You see, because the, the, the scope of this command is so big, you can't, you can't not teach when you live your life. You can't not teach your children. You can't teach those around you. Let me show you what I mean by that. How big is the scope of this command? Well, of course, it starts out with family, and it starts out in Genesis. In Genesis, Adam and Eve were the first family, two people, and in those two people, they had some kids, and with their kids, they were everything to those children. In other words, they were, they were prophets, they were priests, they were the kings, they were the judge, they were the jury, they were the executioner, they were the sheriff, they were the teachers. They were everything in society because society was four or five people. And so all the functions that had to take place in order for that child to, to live and learn to honor this command happened right there. And all the applications of it happened right there. But eventually, as they had kids and, and more, their kids had kids, there, there actually became two families on the earth, two, two groups of people, if you will. You had one stream of the family that followed God and the other stream that didn't. But they both had all these functions that still needed to take place. And so when you got to, to the nation of Israel, remember the, what Moses had to do? In order to see that laws were obeyed and all these functions took place, he had to appoint uh, commanders over tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands. In other words, other people had, some people had to be priests and some people had to be prophets and some people had to do this for the sake of the larger group. And so there were basically two families that started to form and there are still two families in the world. 
There, there's that family that sort of descended from the seed of the woman who decided that they were going to follow Yahweh, who ultimately became Israel, who ultimately became what I'm going to call the church. And then you had this other group that didn't. They became what I'm going to call the state, or maybe just governing officials or secular government. Now, the interesting thing is that if you're a Christian, you're part of the one family, but you're also a citizen of the other. In other words, you can't say, because I'm a Christian, I have no responsibility to the state, and I don't have, I'm not responsible to actually obey them, I don't have any. In fact, you have every responsibility. So let's look, about, look at that for just a minute. So when you think about in the context of God's people and in the context of, God's, of the state, you have laws, you have officers, you have power to enforce the laws. Now, in the, with the God's people, the power is only spiritual, and with the state, the power is actually physical. They can arrest you and put you in jail if they want. But notice how what, uh, what the author of Hebrews says about the church. when he talks about um, obeying leaders. So this, this is his par- parting shot at the end of a very long letter. He tells the, the Hebrews, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Okay? So, so whoever wrote that letter said very clearly, obey your leaders. In the church, in the context of the church, in the context of God's family, there are also people who are appointed to lead. And the interesting thing is, did you notice his motivation for telling them to, to obey their leaders? He didn't say obey your leaders because they're smart. He didn't say obey your leaders because they agree with you. He didn't say obey your leaders in the church because they have the right vision and direction. He didn't say any of that. He didn't say obey your leaders in your church because they like the kind of music you like. He said, obey your leaders because it is in your best interest to do so. Notice what he says. He says, "Um, let them do so with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I mean, one of the things that breaks my heart, frankly, in the past 20 years is people leave churches. They just do. But there's two ways. One is respectfully and with honor. The other way is to not to submit and say, I'm not going to take any of it. In my experience, that doesn't necessarily end up well. Because unless you're actually thinking through what your responsibility is to, to God and what the promise is, is it really in your best interest? Is it in your best interest to, to, to buck this system? It's one thing if, if you're convicted by God that something is wrong and you need to take a stand. But it's another thing to ask yourself, what if I actually did just submit in the context of the church to what's going on? What would happen? What's the worst case scenario, right? That, you hear that a lot if you live with me. What's the worst thing that could possibly happen? At the end of the day, it's usually not that bad. And because it's in our own best interest to actually hang in there. Because here's the thing. One of the things that makes this commandment so big is that you can't disobey this command without also, or any command that you, anything you do, any sin that you do is also a violation of this command. In other words, remember, God is called our Father. And so if the command is honor your father and your mother, every single sin that we do, every violation of the law is disrespecting, dishonoring God our Father, which means every single thing we do is actually also a violation 
of the fifth commandment, including when we refuse to submit to those in authority over us. And you can say, well, church smirch. I don't, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that. You know, I do what I want. Well, the Bible has a lot to say also about the way that we treat our governing officials. Notice what uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 13. He says this. He says, let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and for those, those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. I'm skipping down to verse 6. He says, because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Yet one of the things, I'll be honest with you, as we're going through these commands, one of the things that breaks my heart, one of the things that makes me cringe is the way I often see and hear Christians talking about our elected leadership. And it, it, it makes me cringe because, when, for one, the Bible says don't do that, but it makes me also cringe because when I hear someone who is, who is running down, say, for example, the President of the United States, whether he's a Democrat or a Republican, I can't help but think that is going to come back on them because someday they're going to wait for their children to, to honor and respect them and their children are going to treat them the same way that they hear their parents talking about the president. I mean, ask yourself this. Not, not only do, do you submit, when's the last time you really sort of prayed for our president? Whether you agree with him or not, no one's asking you to agree with him. When, when have you actually prayed for him? Remember what I told you last week, if you really think that any given president, whether it's Democrat or Republican, is, is going to run the country into the ground, that's probably who you vote for, right? Because the gospel, the, the gospel prospers in the midst of misery. <laughs> and so if you really are convinced that someone's going to mess up everything, that's probably who you should vote for. But at the end of the day, are we submissive to them? I'm sure I've told you this before, in, in our household, until the girls got to be 15 or 16, until still they started having their own opinions about politics and things like that, it, it was sort of God help you if you say anything bad about any president in our household or any elected leader. Because I had this just sense that if, I, if they hear me expressing my opinions all the time about how horrible I think this person is, how horrible I think that person is, that someday they are going to actually, that's going to pay back in my life. And I, I think that's actually true. You can make a case for that. And so ask yourself, what am I modeling before my children all the time? Do my children see me actually submitting to the governing authorities? Do they see me submitting to my church authorities? Do they see me honoring my parents? Because if they do see that, generally speaking, it will go well with them. Whenever the Bible gives these promises, it's, it's always sort of a generally speaking because there are some mysteries. We don't know why God does other things. But generally speaking, if you honor authority over you, the promises attached here says your life will be long in the land. And that's what we'll look at that last. What's the promise? Notice it says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You see in the... Exodus version says, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that your father is giving you. And the Deuteronomy's version, the commentary also says, and that you may do well. In other words, financial prosperity or, or, or physical prosperity. And in other words, they literally, when you put them together, they say, if you do this right, you will live long and prosper. Simple as that. 
Now, that, that was very important for Israel, that your days may be long in the land, because for Israel, they literally had an inheritance in the land. Each family did. And God was saying, honor your father and your mother, respect them, support them, submit to them, and the days that you'll keep this inheritance will be long for you. And you'll do well there. And we know that everyone didn't because if you read the rest of the laws, there's a lot of laws that have to do with the way you get your land back after having lost it. So there were apparent, clearly some foolish people back in the day. Now when you get to the, to the church, guess what? It's even bigger. You see, this is a promise of, of covenant prosperity. In other words, if you, if you obey my law, you will have this promise. I'll give you this land. Now for the church, it's even bigger. In other words, Israel was given this title to a small piece of land, and as the gospel grew and grew and grew to be fully realized in the person and work of Jesus, the title to which we're giving is the whole world. In other words, honor your father and your mother, and the world will be yours ultimately. That's pretty cool, don't you think? That, that you will be, do, live long in the land, you will experience prosperity. Jesus promised prosperity, not the kind you see on TV. He said, those who leave their father and mother, he says, you'll have a hundredfold in this life and in, in the next. Jesus promised prosperity along with persecutions, but ultimately the whole world. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? This small strip of land by the Mediterranean Sea? No. The meek shall inherit the whole earth. Now the problem with that is this is a, a covenant uh, a blessing, which means it also contains a covenant curse, which means as long as you obey the fifth commandment completely and perfectly, your days will be long in the land. You'll have the whole world. The whole earth will be yours. And if you don't obey it perfectly, then you get nothing. So how are you doing in it? What are your prospects of inheriting the whole world based on your own obedience? My guess is probably not very good. Mine aren't. You see, what you need instead is you think, well, you'd have to be a perfect child to, to obey your father and mother all the time. You'd have to be a perfect child to obey the governing authorities all the time. You'd have to be a perfect child to obey the religious leaders all the time. And guess what? There was one man who was a perfect child. You ever see the, the Homer Simpson, uh, the, the, one of the times, he's basically reading the Bible and he says, yeah, I'm reading this book and everyone in here seems screwed up except this one guy. He was right. His name is Jesus. If you think about Jesus in all these spheres, whether it was from his childhood to, to dealing with religious authorities to dealing with the governing authorities, he also was completely and utterly obedient to the fifth commandment in that we were not. Remember when he was, tw when he was 12 years old in the Gospel of Luke? His family takes a, a trip to Jerusalem and they leave. They think he's with them. And he's teaching in the temple for three days. And whenever I read that story, I always think, didn't, didn't any of these old guys think to ask him, like, hey, kid, you got any parents? Like, you can just be here for three days. No one's looking for you. Well, they were looking for him, and they were angry. Let me read to you what his family says to him. <laughs> so they find him. Verse 48 of Luke chapter 2, it says, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So they find him and they're clearly mad and they accuse him of something. Why are you doing this to us? Now, I think one of the things we overlook is when we talk about Jesus lived a sinless life, I don't think we realize how difficult that was. 
especially even as a child. I mean, think about you're, you, like the, think you, you're literally the perfect child, and you have imperfect, flawed parents, and you've got to live with them all the time. What is it like for Jesus not to sin? What is it like for him to be submissive? I mean, if you think about Jesus, like he goes into the, to the workshop one day, and Joseph accidentally hits himself in the thumb with a hammer, and he just starts cursing. Jesus just happens to walk in, and he gets yelled at. Get out of here! You know, blah, blah, blah. All your, and well, didn't do anything. He was submissive in that context. Even here, you see the principle of Jesus saying, I had to be in my father's house. I'd obey God before I obeyed you. But then he went with them, and did you notice what it said? It said he was submissive to them. Luke makes a point of telling us that in spite of the fact he was perfect and they were not, he was submissive to them. Because see, one of the principles you see in the Bible is that all authority comes from God. All authority. And so if you refuse to submit to parents, and, and I'm assuming these are, these are things that aren't against the law, and, and, and in your church and in your uh, government, at some level that says what your submission to God's authority is. Even as a child with imperfect parents, Jesus was submissive. And then when he grew older, think about all of the times where he could have actually, remember it says, I could call down angels here when they were, he was on trial, and when he was dealing with the religious leaders. And I, I think Peter summarizes it best. One of the things I love about Peter's letters, if you remember anything about Peter, that he basically had two issues as you look through the Gospels. Remember Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer, and after three days he'll be raised again from the dead? And Peter would say things like, I'm summarizing, you'll never suffer over my dead body if you're going to suffer. And Jesus would talk about submission. Remember when they came to the garden to get Jesus, and Peter cuts a guy's ear off. Jesus, put, it would have been a wild, Jesus puts the ear back on and says, Peter, you've got to submit to these guys. And so Peter, who struggled his whole life with suffering and submission, when he finally writes a letter, he basically, I think the letter of 1 Peter should be subtitled, 1 Peter, the lessons I learned from Jesus the hard way. And what I learned from Jesus is that what the gospel is all about is suffering and submission. The very things that he bucked his whole life, he writes about in 1 Peter. Remember, Peter's the one who says we ought to be praying for the governing authorities. We ought to pray for the emperor. We ought to bless the emperor and honor the emperor. The emperor was killing people. And yet he writes a letter and tells people they should honor him. And he, they were, the people were being persecuted in Rome. Notice what Peter says to them. Verse 21, he says, For, for to you, this has, you've been called, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, but when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore his, our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." So what is Peter saying here? He's writing in the midst of people who are being persecuted. He's writing to people who can't stand the emperor. And he said, Jesus did this, leaving you an example. When he was threatened, he didn't return threats and returned and all this. So how did he do it? And the key, I think, is in verse 23. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If you're struggling with honoring authority, if you're struggling with submitting to authority, ask yourself this question, or maybe preach to yourself this, I need to entrust myself to him who judges justly. 
that Jesus submitted to the one who judges justly, and he submitted all the way to the very end. He submitted to his earthly parents. He submitted to the religious authorities. He submitted to the governing authorities who crucified him. But do you remember at the end when he was in the garden? You see, let me put it this way. When I was a kid, when my children were small, you know, I would get upset sometimes. And I don't know where my wife found it, but somehow she put into place this appeal process. In other words, so the kid says, I want to go ice skating. And say, you can't go ice skating. Yeah, I'll do this. Yeah, I want to go ice skating. I can't do this. And eventually, um, I'd say, I don't want to hear about it anymore. You know, go do whatever you're going to do. And oftentimes, one of them would come, usually crying. May I make an appeal? <laughs> and as soon as they said that, my heart would melt. It would break. And I would say, yes, you may make an appeal. And they would give, present their case. And I would actually listen much better than I had before. And oftentimes, you know what? I would find out I was wrong. I, I, right? it, that's, this is what's being recorded, too. So for those of you who think I don't believe that. Jesus does the same thing at the end of his life. Remember, he goes to the garden, and he basically knows what is coming, and he says, Father, if there's any other way, can I make an appeal? If there's any other way that, uh, th- th- to, to do this where I don't have to bear all of your wrath, I don't have to bear all the curse, I don't have to bear all their sin, I don't have to be crucified uh, and scourged and spat upon. If there's any other way, can we do it? But then what does he say at the end of that? Not my will, but your will. To the very end, he was submissive. And to the very end, he honored his parents. One of the, it's instructive, I think, one of the last words that Jesus said on the cross was taking care of his mother. He looked at John and said, Woman, behold your mother, and the mother, mother, behold your son. The very, one of the last things he said had to do with honoring his mother. And so the question is, uh, where are we with that? You see, because what it means to be a Christian at some level it is all about submission. Will you submit yourself to God the Father? Will you believe what he says about you and entrust yourself to him? What it means to live as a Christian, same thing. When you struggle with those in authority, will you believe it or will you not believe that God actually has everything in control? He has your back. And if you entrust yourself to him who judges justly, it will ultimately go well with you. Let me read you one fun thing to close with. In, in case you're thinking, well, Tommy, you, just, you don't understand how hard it is these days. Right? Kids these days, if you knew what it was like now, you know, compared to when I was young, all these kind of things. Let me read you something I read this week. Someone wrote this. Youth today love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority, no respect for older people, and talk nonsense when they should work. Young people do not stand up any longer when adults enter the room. They contradict their parents. They talk too much in the company, guzzle their food. They lay their legs on the table, and they tyrannize their elders. Sound familiar? That was written by Socrates 400 years before Jesus was even born. In other words, the reason God gave us this command, I think, ultimately, is because we need it. All the commands were given for our good, not for our bad. It's no more difficult now than it has ever been to, to obey it and honor it. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would simply uh, help us to, to honor the fifth commandment, both in our, in our lifestyles, but also with regard to the way we treat those in authority over us. All of us are under someone else's authority at some point or time or another, and I pray that you would bless us by giving us the ability in and through the person and work of Jesus applied to our lives uh, to obey that. In Christ's name we pray these things, amen.